Technology has the power to solve all sorts of problems, but it's clear at this point that it can also systematize some of the worst parts of our culture, algorithms that equate beauty with lighter skin or that disproportionately disqualify black people from getting loans. It makes you wonder, whoever is designing this stuff, why have they failed to correct these problems? Algorithms are agnostic. They're not good nor bad. It's what they're used for and how they're developed. We'll hear from people on the front lines of inclusive technology design today on Brainstorm, the podcast about how tech is reshaping our world. Hi, everyone. I'm Michal Evram. And I'm Brian O'Keefe. Michal, it's Black History Month. And we wanted to take the opportunity to talk about the biases that you've already referenced and how they're baked into the systems that we all use, but also some of the reasons behind that, including the underrepresentation in the tech industry. One example of that is that a study last year at San Jose State University, which is located in Silicon Valley, found that Black employees comprise just 3% of the workforce in the top 75 tech companies. Yeah, this has been a problem for a long time. Despite the growing awareness in Silicon Valley and other tech hubs, tech companies create products for basically everyone. And if the people at the table making product decisions aren't reflective of society, it can lead to lots of blind spots or worse. Our first guest is Sheree Gibbs, and she is one of the people who's trying to solve for this problem. She's an interaction designer with Google, which basically means that she's one of the people tasked with making design decisions for products that you and I interface with all the time. And she also runs a company called She Designs. It basically provides job training for women of color and non-binary people who are interested in getting into the tech industry. So the people who come through her program, they hear about it on Facebook or through word of mouth, and they get a mentor. That's part of the program here. And those mentors are professionals in the tech industry. So each student is paired with a mentor. We also have a career coach that works with the girls. And so throughout this 10-week training program, we meet with them once a week on the phone. And like similar to how we're doing this Zoom chat now, where they're able to engage with other people in the cohort, as well as all of the mentors. And right now we have a ton of mentors. So thank God people are signing up and like feel free to please sign up if you're interested in mentorship and offering that to women. So we do training um, online. We have a program that runs virtually. So there's some recorded lesson plans and we also do in-person, um, not in-person, but virtual meetups right now. I feel like we call this in-person at this point. So. Yeah, this is in-person, <laughs> exactly. So talk about the importance of the people who are actually designing products for people. How important is it that that side is reflective of who you're designing for. Yeah, it's so, so important. When I was really starting out in my career, I would say about eight or nine years ago, I was really always the only person of color that was also a woman that was in the room designing and actually working on products. And so that really helped to shape my understanding about Wow, because I was in the room, I was able to add value in this way because maybe from my culture, I had an insight that the people in the room didn't have. And so when you can add that sort of value just in the DNA of who you are, right? So if I was someone who was 60 years old and everyone else was 20 years old, that's diversity. If I was someone who spoke multiple languages, that's diversity. And so 
when you actually include more people and you are open to more ideas and you kind of have more of a palette to kind of work from. And and it's, I mean, it's ultimately, it's a business issue, right? Because especially with technology products that scale massively, talk to me about how some of these blind spots or the lack of diverse people in the room can lead to like actual business issues. I mean, if you think about digital products now, right? So thinking about anything from Snapchat filters, not being able to pick up my dark skin partner's face, right? And so technology not being made for her. Or if you think about these biases in technology where they're not picking up on the different biases that happen when it comes to algorithms and how they are biasing individuals to ensure that if I'm a black person and I look like someone else, that I'm actually being targeted more so than someone who's not, right? So there's all these different ways that companies are not doing the testing and the research necessary. And I believe that if you were to test and to work with people of color, and if you were to have them already included in your team, not just to kind of be the black voice, but also to just add value, you're going to make sure that you can prevent errors from happening like that. Bringing it back to to She Designs, like where do you see your role in all of this? And what do you hope that, you know, will come about your, your one organization what kind of impact can you hope to have? Yeah, so, so far we're making so much impact. I, I feel as though we're making impact just in the mission alone. Like once people understand what the program is all about, the fact that we're offering programs to people that might be underrepresented, um, doing things like scholarships and opportunities for young girls of color, that's always making a difference. Some of the things that we teach to young girls is not just about the technical aspects of the job role, but it's really like how to survive <laughs> like in the tech world being one of one, right? How do you kind of shape your internal self-worth and think about the confidence that you should bring into a room with the perspective that you have because it's so different from maybe someone else's journey. Yeah, it's interesting that you know, as there's been more and more awareness and more transparency on the makeup uh, of, you know, various tech companies, there's also more uh, intention and emphasis on on retention, not just on recruiting and what it really means to create an inclusive workforce that, you know, where you're not only hiring more people of color and uh, creating a more representative work workforce, but you're also keeping it that way and growing it. Totally. And there's a lot of incentive for these companies really to make some breakthroughs in increasing the diversity of their workforces, because it's not just about correcting biases that are in the system, even though that's incredibly important. It's also about being able to connect with a wider array of consumers. And so it makes business sense for these companies to get smarter and more aggressive about making sure that they have more people with a seat at the table when they're designing these products and systems. There's probably no greater example of the impact that technology products have had in our lives than social media. And as we all know, these kind of platforms can amplify the best and the worst in our society. So we've seen all sorts of issues on Twitter, for example, including the over amplification of all sorts of fringe beliefs and 
uh, misinformation and harassment and anti-Semitism and racism, and the list goes on and on, right, Brian? The list really does go on, sadly. But there are also a lot of empowering examples of Me Too and Black Lives Matter really, you know, galvanizing people and kind of kickstarting movements, uh, real socially powerful movements. And beyond that, there's also, you know, communities of people that find each other on these platforms, on Twitter, and they just don't get as much attention on a day-to-day basis as whatever is the scandal of the day. So to really dig into that, we reached out to Twitter and I spoke with Nakia Revelak, who's the head of research at the company. She's doing a lot of work to understand their audience better, understand how people use Twitter, and try to figure out how to make it a more inclusive technology for everybody. Of course, understanding people who tweet, when they're tweeting and the experiences they're having on platform, absolutely critical. And on my team, I have people who are responsible for that usability research, which is what we call that experience of looking and observing at people while they're opening up the app and tweeting, etc. However, as we strive to build better for people to understand the pains that they feel when they're perhaps getting abused on the platform, which is a, a common experience, or even people who seek friendship and community on the platform, so much of that needs to be inspired by an outside-in perspective because we are not only people who exist online, we are people who have real lives. So I have brought in anthropologists, social scientists, psychologists, Hmm. game theorists, people who aren't only obsessing about that moment, but really thinking about these issues from an academic lens. I think that's really fascinating because, as you say, these social media platforms were built and developed to optimize and retain, you know, use and, and get people to be sticky with them and want to use them, right? And there's been this criticism for years and years that, well, you've optimized all of that at the expense of, you know, thinking about the consequences of this. I think what you're talking about is flipping it around and kind of looking at it from that other point of view. 100%. I mean, Twitter's values are very much about increasing participation, not just in this conversation happening on the internet, but healthy participation. And so we take the health part seriously. Right. You are more likely as a person in a marginalized community to receive discrimination and abuse. And so by bringing that to the teams and saying, look, pay attention, right? Like, I know that we're moving forward quickly and we want to make sure that we grow the user base. We don't want to slow things down, but we do have to open the aperture. So you started at Twitter in late 2019. So basically coming into 2020 and what a year that was to come in, you know, pandemic, huge economic consequences for so many people the most contentious, arguably presidential election we've ever seen, certainly in this era, and the social justice movement, all these things playing out on Twitter and everywhere else. So what have you learned in your year or so that might be surprising, maybe it was surprising even internally about who's on the platform and how different populations and groups use it? You know, how do Black Americans use Twitter versus Latino people in the U.S. or elsewhere, you know, what are the revelations that you've found? People are coming to stay informed, regardless as to where they fall. They see our platform and continue to see our platform as a place to get breaking news. Right. And there are people who are there, again, no matter where you might fall, who are trying to find their tribe and connect with their interests. 
Um, and so these are the hobbyists, the bird watchers, <laughs> the differences in the groups. That's a thing that we're still exploring for sure. And the reason why it's important is because we have observed, even though we haven't necessarily finished the homework, that Black Twitter is a phenomenon, right? Culture is shaped there. Brands are born there. Brands are torn to shreds there. And there's a specific, you know, dynamic that is, if you're not in it you're, and you're on the periphery, you're not aware of like, you know, what makes it so special. But there's also feminist Twitter, LGBTQIA Twitter. There's Niger Twitter, right? In Nigeria, there's like a whole scene there as well. And this is what, what 2021 is about, to really understand the different Twitters that exist. Yeah. I mean, you hear... These terms thrown around a lot, uh, you know, political Twitter or, you know, football Twitter or whatever. <laughs> but like when, <laughs> like when you refer to black Twitter, for instance, I mean, how would you, as the head of research inside Twitter, how do you define it? I would say it is a manifestation of the best parts of black American culture to be honest, right? And, and and so we call it Black Twitter, but it's not representative of the African diaspora, right? So, you know, I don't necessarily fully identify having grown up in the Caribbean. Right. So it is a specific brand of vernacular and humor and a responsiveness to things that are in Black culture, American culture, that I think is uniquely funny, uniquely aggravating to African-Americans. And it's it's joyous. It's a wonderful thing when you sort of dip into it to see, because if we were to ask all of those people who identify as being Black Twitter enthusiasts and said, come to this party, I think they would all have a great time because they'd all be in on it. And I think that's what culture is. You're, you're in on it. So perhaps the biggest criticism of social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, is that anyone can get on the platform, anyone can spread lies, false information. There's millions of bots that kind of distort the volume of information and, and put weight behind things that may or may not be true. How do you start to come at that and find solutions to make it work better to limit misinformation on your platform and incentivize better behavior mm. and information that has integrity? That That's a heavy one. From a research perspective, we start with the myriad questions that we have around misinformation and the spread of misinformation. And it really starts with the, well, how does news spread in society, right? Like before the internet, there was misinformation, there was propaganda, information spread. And so we needed to understand the science behind the spread of information, which kinds of information are likely to get spread faster. And it's often the most negative, fear-inducing information that tends to get faster in real life and, of course, online. And so that's one sort of like body of thinking. The other is behavior change. And so trying to understand who is more likely to spread, why are they more likely to spread? And, oh, by the way, how do we disincentivize them from spreading is all grounded in this understanding of behavior change. We have tried to study nudges, the theory of giving people these little nudges before that moment hmm. of doing something naughty. How do you identify when somebody is about to do something bad and nudge them? Is there the algorithm somehow signals based on their activity that something bad could be coming or how do you know? So as an example, spreading articles 
because of provocative clickbaity headlines without ever having read the article. Mm, right. Right. So this is, again, one example of many of like bad behavior and misinformation spread. And so something that was implemented was, did you read it? Yeah. Right. Like before you send, have you read it? And so we now know through the data that uh, it actually is increasing the pause and stemming the tide of some of these articles that, you know, are we have human fact checkers who've deemed these articles to be false or this media to be manipulated. And so that's an example of a nudge. It doesn't solve the whole thing because while there's some people who are like, ah, I didn't read the article. Uh, now I write it, I'm not going to send it. There's still a bunch of people who are so fired up emotionally mm -hmm. that it's more about like pushing it out. Again, the motivation behind that could be I'm angry. This reinforces a point of view I already have, or I want more people to like this so that I continue to build my follower base. So there are multiple motivators that make some people just continue to ignore nudges. But this is just one example that we're exploring and have implemented to try and reduce that very human impulse. It's really interesting to see the different ways that technology companies are reacting to some of these issues um, that they've had for a long time. And I mean, I kind of love the idea of nudges, but I'm also really skeptical. It seems a little bit soft. Like, are, are nudges really enough to curb all of these issues, Brian? Well, that's a great question. I mean, you know, there is a psychological aspect to this that if you can get people to pause and think, maybe they won't act, you know, immediately, or at least they'll have that hesitation because there's a lot of research about, you know, how quickly the outrage moves and how we're incited by something that seems scandalous. And so if you can put the brakes on that a little bit, uh, that could be powerful. Now, Nakia did allude to the fact that they're working on a lot of other things. So I'm, I'm excited to see what they do. And I'm hoping that they can, as they continue to deepen their understanding of how people use these tools and react, that there will be some powerful, you know, additions that kind of slow down some of this bad behavior. In addition to what people like Nakia are working on inside these companies, though, there's also a public policy aspect to this whole debate. And that's something I discussed with our next guest, Matali Nkande. She's the CEO of a nonprofit called AI for the People, and she's really passionate about educating people about how the widespread use of the latest and greatest technology can sometimes negatively impact people based on their race. All technical systems follow a certain recipe to get them made. Right. And those recipes are what we call the algorithm. So, for example, and this is a real life example for banking, you might want to build an algorithm that's going to tell you who you should give a loan to. So within that algorithm, you're going to need to know certain things about the people that you're lending to. You probably want to know their name. You probably want to know where they live. You probably want to know their past borrowing history and, and their past paying back history. But then one of the things that was found was an input being used by banks around whether people had looked for other loans online as well. And you could argue that whether you've shopped around or not shouldn't stop you from getting a loan, but this actually happened. And then even within the things that I've said, zip code being one, and borrowing history being another, they're racialized. So when I describe bias in technology, I just simply say, think about the decisions that we've made historically, 
think about why those decisions were made. For example, housing covenants. They were made because white people didn't want to live next to black people. And they didn't want to live next to black people because they were racist. <laughs> and so when you think about that, th that is how we encode our political and social meanings of life into what we think of as technical systems. So when you break this down and you see how the system is built on top of all these other systems and approaches that have inherent bias, then how do you confront that and move us towards the goal of making the technology and the products that the technology industry is creating fairer, more inclusive of Black people and other ethnic groups who are being hurt by the way that the systems are built now. So we can't just go and pick a zip code and say, the reason I'm picking the zip code is that it's mapped to census tract data. And so that means in these five numbers, I know how many people live in a place. I know how much money they make. I know the gender composition, I know health, I know education, all of which is really um, important if you're trying to sell a product. But starting to think I'm going to have to start a data set and ask questions that guide me towards equity. The other thing um, around anti-racist futures and anti-racist technologies is also making the decision that every algorithm that we build doesn't have to be built for IPO or doesn't have to be built to get the next billion. So with your day-to-day -day approach to this mission at AI for the People, uh, where do you devote your energy to advocate on making progress, whether it's raising awareness or lobbying the right people? How do you approach it? We use video and film to create conversations that are driven by first-person narratives. And those, I think, once you put this in a story, it becomes much easier to say, well, why was so-and-so arrested and, and put in jail you know, for 10 days when they weren't at the scene of a crime? They were misidentified. We can prove that they were 30 miles away and then we can then start to introduce, well, facial recognition uses algorithms. They're trained to recognize white men. The old adage that all black people look alike has now become a technical adage because facial recognition does think we all look alike. How much of the uh, problems that you're describing do you think would be solved simply by having more people of color working in the tech industry? which is a, a, a well-documented issue that it's not as diverse workforce as would be representative. And what are the challenges in, in changing that? The tech industry, oh my goodness, um, or white man's land, um, as, as I've begun to call it, we definitely should recruit from across the talent pool to get people in. So that includes... Uh, black people, brown people, indigenous people, people of color, people of disabilities, different gender expressions. Talent shows up in all of us and should be reflected. But in situations where those people do not have power or institutional backing, it's actually very damaging. And so I think that two things need to happen. The institutions themselves need to change and need to really address racial bias, white supremacy, misogyny, 
within their ranks. And in its place, we have to co-create all of us. That's all of us, including white people, the type of workplaces that share power, the type of workplaces that take leadership from uh, traditionally marginalized groups and start thinking, in my opinion, how we can then build tools to align with that because AI for the people is trying to do some of that work in civil society and trying to encourage government and industry to follow along because we love technology. We just want it to be fair for everyone. It's interesting because I think for a long time, the thinking in tech companies was that the more data you have, the better products you can build. But clearly that's not the case because there's so much that's baked into existing data that's out there that is faulty, that's unethical, that's biased, that's just flat out racist. And we really need to rethink the entire life cycle of a tech product, starting from what data goes into how we create things. Yeah, it's kind of a cop-out for all of us and for the tech companies if they just say, well, we built the system based on the data we had. I think talking to Mitali, she loves technology. She's excited by the potential of technology to make the world a better place and to create products that work better for more people, which is totally in line with what business leaders ultimately want to achieve. But you have to be willing to challenge the status quo and say, is there a better way to do this? I couldn't agree more, Brian. All right, that is it for today. We'll be back next week with more talk on how tech is reshaping our world. The Brainstorm Podcast is a production of Fortune Media. Our show is written and produced by Wyatt Worm and edited by Nicole Vergala. Music is by Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds NYC. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. The Brainstorm Podcast is the production. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Can we please use that? <laughs> <laughs>